Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Today we're beginning a six-week journey through John chapter 5. If you've been with us for the last year, you know that New Year's last year we started at the very beginning of this gospel and we said we would take it in little chunks as we move our way systematically through taking breaks for different topical series and things like that. The next six weeks is John 5. And I entitled this series, Would the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Because as the entire gospel, as much as that entire gospel focuses on the identity of Jesus and wants the reader to see and then decide for themselves who Jesus is, this chapter is a little unique for where we're at right now. And what I mean by that is, if you've been with us the last year, uh, you saw... 16, 17 verse intro from John the gospel writer laying his cards on the table. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. You know, he, he, like a table of contents. He told us where he was going. And then he started with other stories related to John the Baptist. And then these really cool stories of a really religious guy named Nicodemus and his struggles with faith and a woman who had a really shady past and probably didn't even feel welcome at church and, and Jesus interaction with her. So we've seen these really cool stories, and the healing of an official's son at the end of chapter 4. We've seen a lot of narratives recently, and we're going to do a narrative again today because it's the first 15 verses of the chapter. But then Jesus talks and talks and talks. The back three quarters to at least two-thirds, maybe three quarters of this chapter is this big, long uh, discourse on the part of Jesus about who he is. And it's very thick, and so that's why it'll take us you know, one week to do this story, five weeks to work through what Jesus says about himself. And his identity is the central theme, not just of the book, but of chapter 5. Today's sermon specifically, tackling the first 15 verses, is called No Hope, No Faith, No Problem. Yes, that is a subtle nod to my country music fans. Very subtle. I'm not a country fan myself, but hey, Jesus loves everybody. If you don't get the joke, you're not a country music fan, and that's totally fine, totally fine. But here's what we're about to see. Again, page 885 if you're in the hardback. We're about to read this story, and we're going to see a guy who has no hope, who has no faith in the Savior standing in front of him, and it ends up not being a barrier to Jesus' power whatsoever. And that is good news. All right? So, all right, John, one of Jesus' first disciples. Oh, I guess I should turn there also, huh? That would help. John 5. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. So there were scribes about 150 years after this was written, and you've seen this if you've read a King James Version of the Bible. There were scribes that were trying to help 
the reader understand why does this guy believe that getting into the water first will heal him. So they added what kind of got put in by accident. It was a side note, but it accidentally got put into the text for a long time that explains the water would stir every once in a while irregularly, maybe some natural spring or something, and they believed that an angel had touched the water. Okay, So although that was not part of the original and oldest text, there's no specific reason to doubt that's what they believed. That's why he's like, I can't get healed. I can't get into the water first. So that was their belief. I can't, sir. Someone else gets ahead of me. Verse 8. Jesus told him, stand up. Wow. Have you ever said stand up to a guy with no legs? Or with legs that don't work? Does that take guts? You'd better be confident this is going to work. Or you are cruel, aren't you? In fact, if a regular human being, if you heard in the news that some punk teenage kid said stand up to a guy who was in a wheelchair, you would have just assumed that he was mocking him and making fun of his disability, right? So you had better mean it. If you think you have the power to heal this guy, that takes a lot of guts to say stand up. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. Man, in the same breath, we've already ruined it. We have already spoiled it, haven't we? This miracle happened. Everybody rejoiced and praised God, and they went and got some round table pizza. Is that how the story goes? No. No sooner has John said, you know, this miracle happened. Let's see, where are we in the middle of verse 10? Oh, verse 9. Instantly the man was healed. He rolled up a sleeping mat and began walking. Yay, awesome. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. What does the word but tell you? Transition. So you're, you're a positive, you're an optimism, things are good. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. Really? Okay. Put on your scientific brain, folks. Just logical, scientific brain. What is the human brain doing if they saw a miracle in front of their face and they are capable, instead of being excited, they're fighting over stupid religious rules that they made up? What's going on in the human brain? Hmm? This is why I keep pressing in on you guys. Sin is not intellectual. It is spiritual. Not up here, down here. All empirical, logical psychology says that when you see somebody transformed for the better, it's time to be happy and excited, even if you're amazed at how it happened. It's time to be happy, and these guys can't do it. Because there's something broken down here. Verse 11, but he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that? They demanded. Really funny when humans are demanding something of God, but whatever. 
The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus came in, the, uh, found him in the temple and told him, this isn't in the notes, should we be shocked that God heals this guy, and where can Jesus find him later? Where God is, where you worship God, where you make sacrifices of praise to God. He might even be following Levitical law, that upon healing, you needed to present yourself to the, the, to the priests to, to verify, like, this guy is ex- exhibiting praise and love and adoration to the Lord. That's why he's in the temple. So Jesus found him there and told him, oh, and just to throw a little more cold water on our happy passage, because Jesus always says happy things, right? Somebody told me that once. Now you are well, ready? So stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. We didn't see that one coming now, did we? We'll get into that later. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Holy Spirit, please allow your word to land on soft hearts today. In your good name we pray. Amen. Note takers, your first blanks. The man expresses a lack of hope based on the wrong object of faith. Do you want to get well? Words. I can't. That's a whole sermon unto itself, telling God what we can and cannot do when he's in our presence and he's a benevolent God. But he has no hope for healing, and he says why? He believes his path toward healing is being the first one in the water when the waters are stirred, when something bubbles, when they think an angel touched the water. His hope is in getting into the water first. Later on, actually, no, previously, it might get repeated, but back in John 4, the previous chapter, so John knows what he's doing when he writes a book, Jesus just said about himself, I'm the living water, take a drink of me and you'll never be thirsty ever again. This guy's going for the water he can see with his eyes when the water that he cannot see with his eyes is standing right in front of him. Okay? His hope is dashed. Because he has put his faith in the wrong object. Has anybody ever thought to themselves, Jesus can heal me, but I have to be first in line. He's only going to heal the first person in line. Everybody else, too bad. No. Have we done this? Okay, thank you. Somebody's helping me preach. Have you ever lost hope because you're looking in the wrong place for a solution? We could literally, we could stop the sermon right here and just meditate on this one idea. Because we have, if we call ourselves Christians, we've got 66 books of God telling us who he is first and foremost. But as he tells us who he is, he is also telling us who we are the brokenness of Genesis 3 that flows out, so we see what the problems are, and then he's immediately setting about to show us that he is going to provide a solution. He himself, his presence, has always been the answer for Israel. I mean, for Samuel 4. Uh, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed in the same battle with the Philistines where they lose the ark. Uh, I think Phinehas, I forget which one of them, his wife was pregnant, gives birth to a son, and names her son what? I know, we're like way deep in the weeds of Sunday school right now. Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? 
She heard of her husband's death, of her brother-in-law's death, and she's got a new baby son, and she is crushed because she heard that they lost the Ark of the Covenant, where the Holy Spirit sat and his manifest presence of how he was a blessing and how he made them a special people separate from the other nations of the earth. His presence always has been the answer. He has refused to leave us alone. And then that presence was even more manifest and clearly uh, made when he took on flesh and lived a perfect life and healed everywhere he went and taught everywhere he went. And then in case we wondered if his presence was still captive inside the temple, at the point that he died on Good Friday and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, there's an earthquake and the temple in the curtain that separated God and man was torn from the top down to the bottom. So then we have to ask the question, is man allowed in to God's presence or did God break out? doesn't totally matter because we were supposed to be dead when we entered God's presence. If we can be in God's presence now and not die, that tells us what Jesus accomplished on his cross. He is the solution. Have any of you ever lived the hypocrisy like I have of believing in our theology that Jesus was the solution and yet worrying all the time and trying to Freaking out, grasping control of money, grasping control of a situation, grasping control of a relationship, because I clearly can't trust God. We've all done that. We do this probably every day. This man is not sitting by doing nothing. He could be at home. He could be over at the temple begging for alms. You know, that's a, that's a viable part of the religion of the day. He could... He's by the water for a reason. So you get the feeling that he is trying to get in the water, but he's alone. He's working off of his arms, trying to get into the water first. And before we put our Pharisee hat on, our hearts should empathize with this guy. We should empathize with, maybe ourselves, but each other when we see behaviors that aren't totally logical based on the wrong object of faith, we all do this, every one of us. And this is why it's so critical, Bible reading, brothers and sisters, if you call Jesus your Savior, Bible reading every single day is so critical. It is the Bible which tells us reality. It tells us where healing and blessing are going to be found. So, think... Thanks to the glory of TV land, even millennials grew up with I Love Lucy. Bringing the generations together. What, and I, I've probably, I don't know if I've seen all of them, but I, I ingested a lot of I Love Lucy growing up. Some good stuff. There's one particular episode, one particular scene that was so powerful, I've quoted it a bazillion times. I don't know if I've talked about it from this pulpit before. Ricky comes home from work one day, and Lucy is there in the living room in front of the couch on all fours, carefully looking through the carpet. Lucy, I'm home. What? Oh, what are you doing? Oh, I lost an earring. And and to which he says, oh, you lost an earring here in front of the couch? Who knows what Lucy said? 
No, I lost the earring in the bedroom, but the light is so much better in here. You and I do this all the time. It's easier to search for my answer here. It's more comfortable to search for my answer here. I feel more in control searching for my answer over here. I don't want to go back to the source. I know I lost the earring in the bedroom, but I don't want to go in there. That's harder. This man who's been sick for 38 years, he's terrified to go to the source. He's in a religious culture where they tell you that if you're infirm in any way, you sinned or your parents sinned. And those are the only two theological options that they offered people that day that were sick. So they believed it was spiritual, but they had a spiritually abusive theology. Either you did something wrong before God, so this is the wrath of God on you, or your parents did something evil, and so God punished your child. Sounds fun growing up being taught that, huh? Sounds real fun. This guy needs more than one type of deliverance. Note takers. Let's move forward to verse 8. Jesus ignores the man's misplaced faith, and he heals him anyway. Can we agree that is some good news? This is not going to be a long point. I've got one sentence for you that I believe is already in your notes. I'm not going to belabor this. Do not let anyone tell you you weren't healed because you needed more faith. This is nonsense that gets taught all over the world right now. It is not biblical. Faithlessness on your part, on my part, it's just a sin. And I know that's weird, you guys hearing me say just a sin, like I'm minimizing it. I'm minimizing it because of the next sentence. Jesus is far greater than sin. Sin is huge if you're talking about you versus sin, me versus sin. Sin is quite small when you're talking about sin versus the sin eraser. Let's assume the worst. You're not only physically sick, but your heart is in shambles and you have no faith that God is even good. Not just faith over whether or not he might provide you physical healing for what's going on, but you don't, you're just not even sure God is good anymore. The Bible is filled with people being blessed by an intervening God when those people did not believe and they had no hope left. They'd given up long since. I mean, goodness gracious, the father of our faith is Abraham. And he and Sarah, they're like, right? The almighty God says to Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Abraham's like, (laughs) right? I mean, read it for yourself. He ultimately had faith. Ephesians 1 would say God gave him that faith. But he and Sarah both struggle. Wouldn't you struggle if you and your wife are in your late 80s, early 90s, and God says you're going to have a son this time next year? 
The Bible is filled with people being blessed by God because of his goodness, his love, his mercy, and his generosity, even when we were not necessarily expecting, hoping, or believing. And guys, this is really critical. If the power of God rises and falls based on something as small as your faith, then that's a very weak God. God's sitting there going, I need you to believe in me before I can act. That's essentially what we're saying. Who grew up, I want to say, was it Rodgers and Hammerstein? Who did the live Peter Pan back in the 60s? The musical. You guys remember how Tink, the, uh, the actress playing Peter Pan, was engaging with the, the screen and telling the kids at home, you know, if, you know, if you clap, it'll bring Tink back to life. And so there are kids all across America probably, you know, I know I did it. And then, anyway, clapping and then Tink slowed the light in the little lantern gets lighter and lighter. Okay. Jesus Christ is not Tinkerbell. Yes, you can tweet that. There's nothing about Jesus or his love or his mercy or his power that is waiting around on you and your strength and your ability. That's just not how he works. In fact, if he was waiting for us, the cross still would not have happened. Christmas still would not have happened. Okay. Verses 9 and 10. Be careful not to tell God what is ethical. Be very careful. The man's healed, he's walking, but this miracle happened on the Sabbath. Oh no, so if you're new to church, devoutly Jewish culture that Jesus was born into, the seventh day, Saturday, the day of rest that God had ordained out of Genesis uh, 1, the first uh, chapter of the first book. But the religious elite had not only just taken the command, they'd thought through a million different ways that this needed to be obeyed, including the carrying of a mat. They decided exactly what was work and what was rest. And so when Jesus says in verse 8, stand up, any problems yet? So stand up provides a problem for the secular mind, right? If you believe the Bible is a lie, if you believe science and faith totally contradict you, if that's where you're at, that's fine, I love you, I'm glad you're here, that creates a problem for you. Stand-up causes a huge problem for the Western secular world, if it actually happens. Pick up your mat and walk creates a huge problem for the religious types. And we only see the reaction to the second part because they're surrounded by a highly religious first century Jewish culture. And they start criticizing God because he broke the rules. It's a good thing we learned our lesson 2,000 years ago because we've never done that since. Glad we learned our lesson. Because nothing would be more arrogant than the creation wagging their finger at the creator. So it's a good thing we don't do this anymore. It's a good thing we have not taken words like love and hate, commandeered them, defined them how we want them to be defined, and then badgered Jesus over the head with them repeatedly. It's a good thing we haven't done that. Those two words 
all of Western civilization right now rises and falls on those two words. If you allow our creator God to define love and to define hate, you will have bearing on reality. Greater love has no man than this, laying down his life for his friends. Instead, our right now definition of the word love is God has to let me do whatever I feel like doing. Did that ever work for a two-year-old and his mom? We're still doing it. Non-religious people are doing it. Religious people are doing it. We're all doing it. It's called sin. The sin is called pride. We all think we're a little smarter than we are. We all think we're a little wiser than we are. We all think we are holier than we are. And that's bad enough for our relationships with each other where I'm judging you and condemning you because I think I'm better than I am. But now I take it so far that I'm telling God what's right and wrong. Huh? This can only work. Modern sexual ethic, heck, modern governmental ethic and policies, modern gender identity, uh, much of what we do with race and ethnicity, a lot of this only works if atheism is totally 100% right. If atheism is true, then I can follow early 20th century Marxism to put a black man with graded teeth from an African tribe, I can put him in the New York City Zoo on display in 1910. That's a thing. I can put an image bearer on display as an animal because Darwin told me he was. Through the 19-teens, I can decide who is allowed to procreate and not because these people here are less evolved than me. We can go into communistic philosophies lording it over and crushing entire populations because we have no one authority bigger than us to tell us that all human beings are created equal in his sight. You take him away, and what do you get? You get the late 19th and 20th and now 21st century. You get the slaughter of the unborn being a political issue instead of being a massacre. That's what you get. Be careful not to tell God what is ethical. Those britches are too big for you. Those britches are too big for me. Who grew up watching Cinderella? It kind of reveals your age. You know, you're like, okay, what year was it when that came out? Was I taking my kids to go see it? Was I the child that was taken? Did I see it years later? One thing that Disney did not alter at all is the central theme for how to resolve the central conflict. The central conflict is that Cinderella, I'm talking about the end of the story, dances with a guy all night 
And he's such a jerk, he doesn't even know what her face looks like after the date. So she, he has to rely on shoe size to figure out who he danced with all night. Call me a liar! If you have a teenage girl, you know how this is going to be. The, the eyes up. You didn't even see her face. Young men, goodness gracious. Dances with her all night and doesn't even know what her face looks like. So, so this glass slipper gets left behind and he's going to search through all the ladies in the kingdom. The, the, the young ladies are going to try on this slipper. And apparently shoe sizes are really, really unique in the wonderful world of Disney because only one person has this shoe size? I don't know how that works. Do you marry the wrong girl? If the first girl to put on the slipper, that's her shoe size, and you marry the wrong one? Like, I'm not sure we thought this through. I'm just saying this guy's not impressing me. That's all I'm saying. This, this prince, I don't think the family tree forked before this prince. So, um, so you see the wicked stepsisters trying on... And then they're totally being judged for being a size 12 when apparently Cinderella was a size 3 or something. Um, that wasn't their fault. That's their DNA. That's their genetics. Um, but you may recall one of the stepsisters works particularly hard and gets this guy. It's going to fit. It's got to fit. And so they have this kind of comical little scene within a scene of her trying to shove her foot into something that it's totally illogical, it's not going to fit, but she's going to make it work. Why? Because she wants it, right? Okay? This is an illustration of something I've been trying to say for more than 18 months now. Will, our desire, the will, precedes thought, it comes before logic, it comes before analysis. This is why Two people can stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and one weeps of how beautiful this thing is that evolved somehow. And the other one is weeping how beautiful that God made this. That's their snap judgment. Two human beings, both of their brains work. How can they come to some such radically different conclusions? Because the will precedes logic and analysis. If you studied psychology in college, this is called, um, not fundamental attribution, this is called um, confirmation bias. I already believe something and I want it to be true, so my brain searches for information that will confirm what I already believe. Now you guys can understand CNN and Fox News. Everybody's looking for information that confirms what they already believe, and those two companies are happy to do it for a small fee. Okay? She wanted the shoe to fit... And so she fights and fights and fights in a way that makes no logical sense. Any person can look and say, it doesn't matter how hard you try, that's not going to work. Okay? So I have to ask myself, am I shoving my values onto Jesus? Am I forcing him to conform? And, And there's this important little detail. If he is actually who he says he is, if he is God... No one shoves him into anything. So I'm doing something that's really illogical and it will not ever work. And this is, I mean, this could, you could be a Christian and try to shove your values on Jesus. You could be Buddhist, try to shove your values on Jesus. It doesn't matter where you're at in, in your own faith journey. We all can and probably do do this. 
We're going to tell him what he's allowed to think and what he's allowed to believe and, and what's nice and what's not nice. And uh, I've, I've told you guys before, uh, Thomas Jefferson, to this day, if nobody messed with it, Thomas Jefferson was buried with his own personal Bible that he had taken scissors to cut out all of the miracles and other things that he disagreed with. I do not want, when I'm laying in a casket one day, I do not want a Bible that is laying there on my chest where I cut out the things I disagreed with and I told God what he was allowed to do or not do. The things God was allowed to say or not say. I don't want any part of that. I want the whole Bible. I want the whole Bible close to my chest and I will walk into glory me knowing that I disobeyed it constantly and that my obedience was only by the mercy of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I walk up to heaven to meet a Savior who knew I was going to screw up constantly and who, with nail-pierced hands, says to me, I knew you were going to screw it up, Greg. You don't need to cut out parts of what I said. This has already been cut out of my own flesh. Christ's cross is what makes up for the parts of the Bible that don't jibe with the human life. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We find out when Jesus comes and finds this man in the temple, that Jesus hates sickness, but he hates sin far more. Did you know that? He loves wholeness, but he loves holiness far more. So you don't think I'm making it up. Back to John 5. Fourteen, but after Jesus found him in the temple, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well. Is he talking about his physical or spiritual existence at this point? So his sentence starts off with what the man understands, right? So we don't know if this has been 15 minutes. We don't know if this has been three or four hours. He's had a tiny little bit of time mentally and emotionally to reckon. I, I am walking for the first time in 38 years. There might have been some skipping and jumping. Who knows? All we know is that he went to the temple and Jesus found him there. Now you are well, so stop sinning. Now the first rule of Bible interpretation is that the Bible gets to interpret the Bible. That's how literary analysis works. If you're in chapter 4 of A Tale of Two Cities and you're confused, you don't go outside A Tale of Two Cities. You don't open up Mein Kampf to shed light on the meaning of chapter 4 of Tale of Two Cities. Thank you. I've got one person with me. You keep reading. And Tale of Two Cities, front to back, Charles Dickens gets to tell you what he's saying. Does that make sense? Say yes. Okay. 
So we've got 66 books here that are called the Bible. And Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse could happen to you. Is Jesus saying that this man is capable of moral perfection? We know the answer is no. Why? Because we've got 66 books showing us, and in particular, the coup de grace is Romans 3, 19 and 20. The law, no one's ever been made right in God's sight by obeying the law. Rather, the law shows us how sinful we are. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3. So the purpose of all God's right rules isn't that we can actually obey them. It's to show us we're going to need a Savior. We are broken now that we've rebelled against God back in Genesis 3 in the garden. We're broken now. We're going to need his mercy. We're going to need his forgiveness. We're going to need a Savior. So there's no way Jesus, and Jesus is always pointing to himself anyway. So there's no way Jesus is telling this guy, go out by yourself on your own power and be completely morally perfect on your own. And by the way, if Jesus ever said that, then he was the biggest jerk in the whole world. You can't shove that burden onto a broken, finite human being. We're not capable of doing it. So that can't be what he's saying, right? We take all of what Jesus says, but let's look at his point. His point is where the end of the sentence is, or something even worse may happen to you, okay? He is starting off his sentence with the physical reality the man can see, You've been physically healed. Your legs work now. And now I want to show you the spiritual reality where I've always been trying to take you. Sin is what is killing you spiritually. Fight sin. Push against it. This is not a complete sermon. Jesus knows that very shortly he's going to a cross. And then he's going to raise himself to life. And this city where this man lives and is now worshiping is going to be filled with the news of who Jesus is. So Jesus' ministry is really unique. It's not exactly like the Old Testament prophets because the cross is so close. And it's not like Paul who can point backwards. Paul, Peter, James, they're all pointing back to the cross and the empty tomb and and Pentecost. It already happened. We already saw it. Jesus is in the middle. And sometimes it feels like he's not giving the whole puzzle at once because he knows what's about to happen. He knows what's about to happen. The gaps are about to get filled in in a big way. He said to Nicodemus, you've been born physically, you need to be born spiritually. He's trying to take Nicodemus from what he can see to what he cannot see. John chapter 4, you can see this water that's in front of you and you understand physical thirst, but you don't understand spiritual thirst, which is what I actually have to offer you. John chapter 5, here's this water that you think is going to be your healing, but I am here in front of you, I am your healing. Uh, Holiness... Jesus versus sin. To say to avoid sin is Jesus, the same thing as saying trust in me. His cross is the only answer for the washing away of sin. Now let me get super practical with what we're talking about here. Right now, today, in 2020, different Christian churches struggle over the questions of what gets called social justice. I hate that that name's been dragged through the mud. I think Fox News only knows about atheistic social justice warriors, and so they do SJWs and blah, blah, blah. Those, the ones they talk about are all atheists. What about the Christian ones? You know what I mean? Christians, the modern hospital would not exist without Christians. The orphanage was invented by Christians because babies in Rome were being left on the trash heap. Is that an SJW? You know what I mean? Somebody needs to talk to Fox. Anyway, who's going to do that? Who's going to shoot them an email? Okay, so 
There are Christians that are over here that care desperately about horizontal relationships between image bearers, fellow men and women, different countries, different nationalities, different languages, and, and they want to see justice flow like a river, Amos 5. And there are people over here that are super theological and big books, and they care deeply about the vertical of, you have to be forgiven before God for, for your sins, right? And like all broken human beings, we tend to pick an extreme instead of seeing that the Scriptures command both. If you look for it, you'll see over and over again, your vertical reconciliation to God is going to manifest itself in loving and reconciling horizontally. The man who owed millions of dollars and is forgiven by the king, the king expects him to go to his friend who owes him 30 bucks and to be gracious with him as well. And he's not, and the king's ticked off about it. If I'm forgiven this huge debt, then I should be able to come to you and forgive something that is relatively small in comparison. Our Father doesn't just adopt us as sons and daughters simply to wash away our sins and glorify his name, which he does, but he also does it that we would turn around and be a blessing, that we would live out that same gospel horizontally. Choosing one of these extremes is not good, not healthy, and not biblical. So that's why I'm asking you this. ARCF, we can't truly be compassionate if we care only for the body, not the eternal soul. You know that, right? One is a bridge to the other. So the vertical people, they're all with their theology and their big books, and like, we have to preach the gospel. The gospel is the seed that the, the sower is throwing out into the world. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. Totally agree. A hundred percent. Do you know there are a lot of people in Citrus Heights right now that do not care whatsoever what you think about anything, let alone what you might think about the Bible or what you think about their spiritual state? Jesus over and over again showed a willingness to meet a practical need that somebody can feel. I may not feel that I'm a sinner, but I can feel that I'm stuck here by this pond, by this pool, hoping to get in first. That I can feel. So let me, for the sake of time, I'm going to say it as succinctly as I can, and then I'm going to pray. Don't you dare run a food, food closet and never, ever tell somebody about their Savior. And don't consistently preach the gospel without ever meeting needs. You might not get the chance for them to hear it. That's it. I promised it as succinctly as I can. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we want to see you. And we want to see you rightly. And we want to respond with praise and with joy and with gratitude. So would your Holy Spirit work through this Gospel of John? God, make us a family that lives and breathes a Gospel that comes to us from you, but then has implications for everyone in our world. Red, brown, yellow, black, or white, they are precious in your sight. Republican, Democrat, white collar, blue collar, no collar, 
Afghan, Russian, South African, Canadian, Jesus, would you make us more and more into the image of the family of God you've wanted us to be all along? And God, would you show your love today in a manifest way to those of us who have never before seen your face? We ask for this mercy in the strong name of Jesus, who does not need our faith to do a miracle. God's people said, Amen. Love you guys.